Welcome to the 18th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Our guest today is Alistair Hyam. Alistair is an international expert on match play and momentum in sport. His work on momentum includes advising professional tennis players, football teams, coaches, players, and athletes. He's the author of two best-selling books on momentum, and his work is currently showcased in the Wimbledon Museum. On today's episode, we discuss what momentum is and isn't, how to spot a turning point in a match, and how you can use your mind and your tactics to swing a match in your favor. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Alistair, welcome to the pod. Hi, I'm very pleased to be here. It's awesome for you to join us today. You know, this is a topic uh, I told you before we got on air. It's one of my favorite things to discuss and, and learn about. Um, before we get into how you stumbled across all the details of momentum, can you give the listeners out there who don't know you a brief history of how you got into the game of tennis and then how you got so interested in momentum in sports? Well, I guess I began playing tennis when, like so many people when I was 10, 12. A t- local tennis club was built near me and seemed to do quite well and progressed through the ranks, played at uh, university or college. Then I went into coaching. I became a national coach eventually, uh, traveling around all the top tournaments in the world. Uh, then moved into what we call coach education, coach development, and I was head of coach education for the LTA. And then I've now moved into more university or college tennis for three days a week. And then my own projects, such as Momentum, for two days a week. So for the listeners out there who aren't familiar with this topic, can you give a simple description of what you believe Momentum is in terms of sport and tennis? Sure. I mean, simple is never easy. I think probably I'll go to my wife's definition, having looked at all the academic uh, studies over the years and thought about it in depth she said oh yeah momentum that's that feeling of things going for you or against you and that was straight from the kitchen sink as she did the dishes which kind of made you feel a little bit uh, oh yeah that's pretty good um so i think that's that's what we will set off with the feeling of things going for you or against you in a match now it is backed up by you know research the research sometimes finds it difficult to really pin it down because it's it's uh, subjective it's a feeling i think we all can recognize it. We can feel when there's big comebacks being made. We can see when things are changing in a match. Uh, and it's not just in the scoreboard. It's, in, it's, it's a feeling of somebody getting better and better or worse and worse. So I think that's, that's a sort of a broad picture. We can get a little bit more specific in saying that most of the studies, and you can look at momentum, a lot of people will talk about momentum as being an individual thing. So you feel like things are getting better and better or a bad patch where it's getting worse and worse. Then you can look at it, as I like to do, a little bit more from the stands and say, what's the balance of the match? Who's got the momentum uh, in this match as it moves forward? And, and these, this is important because that individual feel, which a lot of the studies have been done for, is not always as useful as that from the stands, spectator, commentator view, where you can see who's got momentum. And now you can start to understand that if one person's got it, then the other person doesn't have it. And you can start to see who's gaining momentum. And that's the other aspect of it. It's not just that feeling of things going for you or against you. Um, The word comes from momentum as in a snowball gathering size and pace as it goes downhill or a runaway train. It's that feeling of 
gaining momentum quickly and, and, and you see it at its strongest when there's a, a surge and one team seems to suddenly be rolling you know, on a roll and running away with a match. And then later on, that can change and you can see the other team starting to claw their way back in or the other player claw their way back in and things start to change. Um, so I think there's the individual side, there's the looking at it from the stands side and it's a term which has come to really mean somebody who is gathered who is gaining the upper hand in the match and this is important because if you were just looking at sport and statistics you would think it's just a comparison between two players everything tells us that sports a comparison whether that's betting or seeding or rankings but we know that the worst the supposedly worst player, the lower ranked player, the player who's not supposed to win, can and often does win. And it's because of this, how the match plays out, the journey of the match, who gains momentum at certain times uh, and who feels like they've lost hope and missed opportunities. So I, that's a sort of an, an overall picture. We can touch on some of the research if you like. Yeah, actually, I, I'd love you to to kind of break that down, the, the research. So if you say that, you know, this thing exists and it's so important to the outcome of the match, you would think that everyone would come out and go, well, hey, one thing I want to do right off the bat is start creating some positive momentum for myself. How, how does momentum get created in a tennis match? I mean, I think that... Um... If we just touch on the, the academics, so say psychological momentum refers to the perception that an actor is progressing towards his or her goal. Um, and I think that's quite important. So in order to gain momentum, you need to see that what you're doing is working or could work. Uh, now, that doesn't always happen straight from the start. You, you sometimes find that gap between you and them when you find the right tactics or you gain the upper hand mentally. But certainly, if you want to get off to a good start, you want to perform to your highest level and gain momentum is always, uh, if we want to make it more grounded, related to my performance against your performance. So if we think about it in performance term, the bigger the gap between our performance and the faster the gap between the performances move, that's when people talk about gaining or losing momentum. So if you want to get off to a good start and gain positive momentum, then you need to set off at your highest level possible with the most positive outlook and take it, you know, imposing your game on the opposition. And now where it goes from there is not always down to just you. That's, you know, the issue because if we think about that definition of momentum from the stands, if you're looking at it from the stands, then there's two people involved. So it's not quite like a snowball rolling forward because, or a train, a runaway train uh, going forward because in sport, you can, the opposition can basically upend the track and turn it the other way. So it's not just a, an individual thing, it's to do with you and the opposition. Now, if it gets to a stage where there's a strong surge of momentum after, say, a bad line call and a misset point, and one player gets better and better having won the first set, and the other player gets worse and worse, we often see that scoreline in junior tennis, 7-6-6 love, 7-6-6-1. Uh, and that's where Bricky and college, colleagues in 2014 identified positive psychological momentum experienced as an upward spiral, a period in which everything seems to go well, 
and negative psychological momentum is perceived as a downward spiral when everything seems to go wrong. So there's a range of things there. And that's why I kind of come back to that first kitchen sink definition in some ways, because it's more useful to think in a match, where's this direction of the match going? Who's got the upper hand? Uh, who's gaining momentum? And what do I do uh, from here? I've actually seen this. I told you I'm at a national tournament right now, and I've actually seen a bunch of matches on the draw sheet that say 7-6, seven, 6-love six, six or... Uh, you know, a tight first set, and you can tell that something changed. And you've been mentioning the psychological and the emotional aspect. So take a bad line call, for example, or uh, the tournament I'm watching is clay court. So I've seen some really bad bounces on some important points. Is it is it fair to say that that negative momentum for that player starts because of a negative emotional response and that they can't move past the value of just that one point? that they dwell on that and that then affects the play moving forward? I mean, there's a variety of reasons, but yes, essentially that could well be what's happened. I mean, I think there is a, essentially, if we go back to that idea of performances, your performance is made up of four performance factors, uh, tactical, technical, mental, physical. And if we think about what a player can change of those four performance factors in a match, then you can't change your technique, it's it's fixed. Sure, you can relax and play a bit more fluid, but that's more of a mental thing. But if you're playing with a semi-western grip or a two-handed backhand, or you've got you know, slightly inside out on the serve, it's unlikely you're gonna change that significantly in a match. You've got what you've got. Um, physically, you may get tired, you may not rehydrate, but you're not gonna improve your VO2 max or get faster over 10 yards. You've got what you've got. So the things that really affect your performance and create that gap between you and the opposition or close it are either in the mental area or in the tactical area. And if there's been something which is seen as significant and uh, you know, plenty of events coming through in matches which can be seen as significant, then that can affect both players where one player sees that bad bounce at a crucial point or that bad line call as detracting from their performance and really get down on themselves. Uh, and then the other player can see it as a boost and start to improve their performance. And then that, when you get that double change in performance, one player spiraling down and as, you know, as we talked about before and the other player moving up, then that gap in performances really opens up. And that's when you hear the phrase uh, momentum has shifted. Is it possible, I've heard you speak on other podcasts before, and let's take the example of a bad line call since we're talking about that. Maybe someone could get really upset about it, but like on the flip side, you said maybe that, that energizes the, the side that got that lucky break. Is it possible to manufacture that positive energy and that sensation without having that event in the match so that you can create that positive momentum for yourself? Yeah, I mean, basically, the event is never the turning point, And we should touch on turning points, really, because turning points, I work very closely with a sports psychologist called Anna Suarez, who's Portuguese. And Anna is doing PhD into turning points. And turning points are perhaps the most tangible aspect of momentum. They are significant match events after which there is a change in momentum. But in the research and all the discussions we've had and the examples we've got, it's never the event that it's the turning point, it's the reaction to the event. So if you take, uh, if you perceive something as good for you and I perceive it as bad for me, then 
it's likely you will increase your performance and get that positive surge. And I will, if I start blaming the umpire or myself or the gods of tennis, then it's, it's quite possible I'll go down and start to get disheartened. So I think it's the reaction that counts. Now, to your question specifically, if can you create it without an event? Yes, you can just decide, let's go. Let's start this match now. And, and that is the event in that case is something that happens in your mind. And equally, it can be something that happens in your mind that distracts you and takes your performance down. You, could, uh, you can uh, almost self-destruct and you, you can argue, you know, we sort of saw that in the Wimbledon final, you know, sort of an element of self-destruction there when, when it really mattered. And that sort of swung the match in at a crucial moment in Djokovic's favour. But it could be something as simple as, as being distracted by somebody in the audience, some bias clapping and having the resp- wrong response to that. Occasionally, you'll see an unusual response, um, which is a very strong, positive response to essentially what would normally be perceived to be a bad event happening in a match, a significant match event against you. Players getting fired up after a bad line call against them and uh, actually taking their level up. We've seen that. Players getting fired up by getting annoyed at something that they, you know, an easy shot they miss. So, yes, it, a lot of it comes back to mental and uh, you can start this increase in your performance in your own mind and you can prevent a decrease in pre- uh, performance in your own mind by seeing things more positively and seeing what could be uh, rather than getting down on yourself about what you fear. So it sounds to me, tell me if you disagree, but if you can do a good job of managing your emotional responses, that you can limit how many of these events might swing the match against you. And then if your opponent doesn't do a good job with that, maybe you have this edge going in before you've even hit a ball where you say, hey, there might be five let cords in the match. There might be two close line calls. But if I'm a neutral emotional responder to all those events, I'm limiting how many of those turning points can exist exist against me, but I might get those same benefits against my opponent. And if they're not as emotionally sound, I can use that to my advantage. Is that about right? Yeah. And I think that the uh, what we focus on, we've got online courses available at coachingeduk.com. But what we focus on there is, is a lot of tools which can limit turning points against you and take advantage of them for you. And I think fundamentally, um, I have a teaching degree and I think actually understanding the game is very important and we don't spend enough time actually uh, on court or off court explaining the game to our players. So these emotional responses and being able to control them, I think will be helped if you actually understand the game really well. So if you understand that things are going to happen in a match, it's very unlikely you're going to go through a match from good to very good to great to game over matches do go through phases and you know we can watch them we sometimes when you're really connected to uh, a player and the parents are of course emotionally they can sense the good patches and the bad patches but i think players always think particularly junior players always think it's going to be a breeze and it's just going to go well and i'm going to play like i do in practice and it's all going to be fine um, but the reality it doesn't show that and one thing you can do with your players uh, is ask them how many matches they've played and actually get them to do the calculation. 
And it's amazing how, how we don't know. In some sports, everybody, if you, I, I work in professional soccer as well, um, they all know how many matches they've played. They'll, they'll tell you exactly how many goals they've scored. It's on all the websites if they want to look it up. Even amateur levels, people have taken care to, to uh, get all that, those stats. Whereas you ask your juniors, how many matches have you played? I'd like to bet they don't know. So you make them do the calculation and you know, let's say 60 matches per year over 10 years results in 600 matches. Um, and then you ask them, well, how many of those have gone without a bad line call, without a struggle somewhere, without having to adapt your tactics, without missing a shot when you would prefer to have hit it, without a lucky let cord against you, without a broken string in your racket, without something, a change in the weather, um, probably more in Britain, the change of the weather. But anyway, um, how many have gone like that? How many have gone good, very good, great game over? Not in a not not against one walkover matches, but you know in serious competitive matches, and it's really interesting to listen to their answers. And normally they can name the match, and there's not many of them, and they can say, oh, "It was here. I did this. I played like this." And and normally out of six hundred matches, I'd be surprised if they have more than ten, and usually six. Now six out of six hundred is a one percent uh, occurrence. So then you can flip it on its head and say, well, I had no idea what's going to happen in, in your next match, except with 99% certainty, it's not going to go good, very good, great game over. So it's kind of get used to it. It's going to happen. And therefore, if you're going to get super emotional about everything and you are going to, particularly if you're going to catastrophize things that are just normal events, people are going to try and um, bias clap against you. It's going to happen. People are going to get bad line calls. You're going to break a string in your favor. It's your response that counts. That's how players should be judged. What are your response to these things? And therefore, in that sort of education piece, which we focus on in the courses, then hopefully, uh, you know, players can begin to get more perspective on these things. And therefore, the emotional response uh, is not. You know, it's just it's going to be seen as a challenge rather than a problem. I want to touch on turning points again, and hopefully, I'm not outing myself as a, a terrible coach. But uh, the match I the match I was watching yesterday, it was three two in the first set, and they played like a game that had ten deuces. And I was like, oh man, this is gonna you know swing the match one way. It could be four two down a break, and the player I was rooting for ended up losing that game on a very tight line call. And I was like, oh, man, this is this is not good, right? 4-2, and I, I thought my player might lose some energy. And the reverse happened. The person who won the game completely relaxed and made qu three quick errors. And my player came back and won 3-4. So is it possible to spot turning points live, or is it only possible to know the turning points after the match is over, and then you can go back and pinpoint it? I think that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think the turning points for me fall into two categories of things that happen a little bit unexpectedly, such as what you've described there. You wouldn't expect you know, suddenly to lose that long game and then be gifted, gifted uh, the next game. And those are turning points um, which you can't really predict. But then there are more predictable turning points, and that's because of the scoring system. So whereas in soccer, we don't know when a goal is going to be scored, in tennis, if you get to six all, there's a tie break and the set is going to go one way or another 
in the next 10 minutes or 15 minutes. So we know that things in the tiebreak take on a greater significance and therefore you can be more aware of the potential for turning points to happen at critical scores um, and therefore be better prepared for them, particularly tactically, I think, you know, when it comes to those crucial moments. Because a turning point may be an event, but of course, a turning point can be at the start of a tiebreak deciding these are the tactics that have worked so far, these are the patterns of play, that's what I'm going to hone in on. Equally, a turning point can be at the start of the second set when you change your tactics because uh, it's not worked in the first set. So you just mentioned score. Is there anything about the score other than deciding what the important points are that can affect momentum? Yeah, can I just zip back to that last question? Because I think another thing about spotting them in the moment is to watch the opposition. So can... Can you spot a turning point in the moment? I think you can be aware of the things which are likely to create a change, uh, a, a degradation in the opposition's mentality, a sort of a something which is going to upset them. And mostly that will be missing opportunities. And you can see it in their body language. And a friend of mine, a, a colleague, Keith Reynolds, very experienced coach, would say in boxing, you're so close, you can see any changes. Whereas in tennis, we don't always look up to imagine how they're feeling and to see what's just happened, how it might be affecting them. And therefore, to increase your intensity and focus when you see that they may be wobbling a little bit, then that's when you can spot it in real time and then make a change. Now, if it's something obvious, then it's easier to do. But sometimes you can just feel that something's upset them and it may be something you don't know it may be that they've lost the last three matches they played from 5-2 5-3 up and suddenly they're looking but you don't know that and then you go 5-3 and then you hold for 5-4 and suddenly they look very nervous and they're just not as positive as they might be and so with a little bit of imagination and knowledge of the game you can make educated guess guesses in real time about turning points I actually want to touch on what you just said about playing three straight poor matches or if you had a couple bad events. Do you believe that momentum exists across events like that? So if I have a couple first round losses, I enter my tournament already with some negative momentum or do you feel like that's a straight reset every time you step on the court? Oh, I think we all know things hang around with us, don't they? And uh, without knowing the psychological reason for it, you know, it can be that form and in recent form, um, has an influence as to how you perform now. And I always think, I always remember um, Tim Hemmer played a Davis Cup match and Craig Tiley, who's now in charge of the Australian Open, was the Davis Cup captain uh, against him. And, and Henman won on a bad run of form. And he said he was impressed by Henman winning because what tends to happen is, in his experience is that players who've been on a, a poor run of form, recent history tells them it's not worth continuing to renew their efforts because recent history shows it's, it's not worked out. Whereas if you're on a good run of form, recent history shows it's worth renewing your efforts and keeping going and being positive. And therefore, you're more likely to come in with that belief. And, and also, it does become the more you do something, the more you get in the habit of doing, the more it becomes moves from that um, sort 
to the self to subconscious rather so it becomes more autonomous and you start to just renew your renew your efforts and play well because you have been doing recently it becomes you know like something you do so yes i think over a season we do see in soccer i'm sure in the team sports in america um we do see runs of good results and then something happens in a particular match sometimes a local rival they lose to and bad tempered match and that can affect them for the subsequent matches so yes recent form does play a role which of course is why we as coaches should keep an eye on the win loss ratio and encourage our players to enter the tournaments which gives them a chance to build on it or turn it around so if they've been playing two high level tournaments it's worth dropping to lower level tournaments to get some wins so let's shift our focus to the tactical side. You mentioned those four ways that momentum can be affected. We've been talking a lot about the mind and the, the emotional response, but if you have momentum in the match, I, I've always thought that you should just play your optimal tactic or strategy given the situation. And then you people kind of say, well, if you have momentum, maybe what you should do is, you know, make a higher percentage of first serves and, you know, keep your foot on the gas that way or make sure you start hitting the bigger targets because you can see that other person spiraling. So you're shifting your tactics tactics when you're ahead. But sometimes I've had an issue looking at that and going, well, but what you were doing was already working. So why, why are you changing? How do you see the tactical side in managing momentum? I think uh, it's worth working it through with your players because you can have two very different approaches be successful. So for example, when I was used to play and I got a 4-1 up with momentum for me, my tactic would be to try to take them on on their strength and slightly vary my game. So in other words, I'd try to go up a level and really, um, really, I suppose, push for the victory by playing a little bit away from the tactics that had got there because I felt that they may get used to the tactics and they may make an adaption. So I was kind of getting the change in before they changed their losing game, if you see what I mean, to keep them guessing. Now, that's, I always found that successful. I, I used the cushion of a lead, in other words, to play with more freedom, to go for it a little bit more, to slightly vary it. And now I had momentum with me, it felt good I was feeling good they were not feeling so good so I would at certain times perhaps at 30 love deliberately go to their strength and try to beat them on their strength because the conditions felt I could do that now a very good friend of mine who's equally successful uh, in his tennis career was absolutely 180 the opposite he said oh no no when I'm falling up in the lead the last thing I want to do is give them a quick way back into the match I don't want to feel, I don't want to vary my game. I don't want to risk any quick unforced errors. I want to make them run as far as they can. And when I get 4-1, I want to make them feel like they've got a mountain to climb. So I'm going to lock down. I'm going to do exactly what I was doing, but even um, more consistently. And I'm going to get ever so slightly. And I'm going to turn the screw in that way. So I don't think there's a right answer to it. And I think if you look at the top of the game, you might see, whether it's in the men's or the women's game, different approaches. And you might see players really going for it and, and going up a level. And, you, and at times you see other players locked down and, and see through the win. So I think it's worth discussing with your players what do they feel they want to do 
and work out the best approach from them. Because as always with top sport, there's no one right way. On the flip side, you know, you could be losing a match, right? And that, that momentum is going against you from a tactical sense. Um, I don't know if you watched it. I think it was Bublik and Tiafo, and it was the fifth set at Wimbledon. And Tiafo got up an early break. And Bublik, he, he, it looks like he used two things. He started treating it like an exhibition. He was walking around joking, laughing, taking all the intensity out of the match, serving underhand tapping the ball in play and, and kind of making a mockery of the set. But by making that shift, Tiafo relaxed. And all of a sudden, Bublik around 4-2 turned on the gas again and Tiafo wasn't ready and he got right back in the match. So not only did he use a, an emotional tactic to relax Francis, but he changed his game. Are there any, is it similar to the, you know, maintaining it where you go, hey, it's just a personal preference for how you want to shift momentum? Is it do you find that being aggressive shifts it quicker? Do you find that just, you know, making balls very high is what shifts it when you have it negatively against you? I think it's different. Again, it's down to the person. I've seen that, the description of what you've just uh, described, that sort of, um, you know, pretend it doesn't matter, try to go up a level whilst trying to affect the opposition. Ba basically, it's like you're in a race and I'm racing against you and it, you know, we're both running as fast as we can and you go, wait, wait, just slow down. Hang on, hang on, hang on. And I, and I say, what, what? And then, and then you go, go, and you take off. So you're controlling when the energy comes down, when it takes off again. So I have, I've seen that on a number of occasions. It's, a, it's an interesting tactic. And it gives the person behind a sort of a freedom and a rest before going again. But it's individual what you do when you, uh, you know, to ch turn the momentum around. I think, I think one thing which I'd touch on tactically is the use of tempo. And I think that if we go back to the definition of momentum as a spiraling, getting better and better, as this snowball effect that we can see in matches with players coming back from 5-1, 5-2, then 5-3, 5-4, and you, know, you, you feel and you can see it's 5-all and you think, well, it's not really 5-all because that player was 5-2 down and now you know they're racing back. But if we go back to that... that um, so, and we take it to the news and you hear that momentum is building for a peace process or it's building for uh, climate change or something in the news. What they mean is a series of positive, positive events has happened in a short space of time. And that's true of sport in tennis as well. When you see momentum building, a number of good plays happen in a short space of time. So it's is an indication of momentum being for a player. So I think, I think as, a, as a general rule, if momentum is against you, you should use your time in between points, um, you know, within the rules, of course, and get your head together. Because when momentum is against you, it feels like things are going wrong. It feels like you're running in treacle. It feels like your shots don't work. That if you play a drop shot, then it won't go in or it will, the opposition will get to it. Whereas when momentum's for you, if you play that same drop shot, you feel like it'll go in and the opposition, even if they get to it, you've got the next shot covered. Um, so I think there's that feeling of things going for you is good and you want things to happen. Keep the match running. Keep it fairly short between points. Don't sit down for a long change of ends. Don't go for a toilet break when you've just won a set unless you absolutely have to. And when it's going against you, 
you should, it feels very different. You need to stick to the basics, start making some balls, look for simple targets and take your time. Because the temptation, I think, is to rush when things are going wrong particularly if you had momentum at the start of the match and you've lost it, you want to rush to get back to where you were. Whereas actually, if we go to that newscast, for momentum to die, you actually need time to pass because when momentum's for the opposition, things are by definition going well for them. And if things are happening in quick succession for them, you're going to be too far behind if you're not careful. I remember I played a, I played for Duke University and I played a freshman from Georgia Tech one year and he came out, he had a couple double faults in the first game. We changed ends. I had a couple aces. I had a good serve. And then I broke him again in the 3-0 game and he looked a little rattled and it was kind of a cold day, so it wasn't too hot. I wasn't too tired. And I just, I didn't even sit down. I just walked to the other side of the net and stood at the baseline. And then he took a 30 second changeover. You know, he, instead of just sitting there, he got a little intimidated and I ran him right out of the, it was six, one, six, one, and he never slowed down. He never stopped. And, you know, it's not something that, that I would, you know, advocate people doing is like, Hey, let's just stop taking water and and stop sitting down. But in that moment, you kept the match running. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and on the flip side, you know, you want to be a turtle out there when, when things aren't going against you, but sometimes there can be pressure and things go quickly for the kids and you have so many things to think about. Um, I love that slowing down is is so important when you're losing. Jonathan, it sounds like that's one of your good, very good, great game over that you can remember where and when it happened. <laughs> exactly. And I, I didn't mind telling all the listeners out there that I did win a quick match like that. Um, <laughs> all right. So we're going to finish up with some Instagram questions. Uh, it can be on the men's or women's tour, but who is the best player that you've seen use momentum on the professional tours? I think Djokovic is unbelievably good at it. And you'll see him switch his play you'll see him go for it more when he's behind you'll see him lock down when he needs to lock down so I think you have to say Djokovic is a, a, a master at controlling momentum and he talks about it a lot in his uh, um, his interviews as well I think Serena was always very good at dealing with things and changing matches around I think the amount of times you've seen her trying to find a way and trying to find away and turn it around particularly if she set off nervously and whoever she was playing the underdog of course by definition set off playing out of their uh, tree then that she would find a way either tactically or mentally imposing sometimes Uh, so I think yeah I would go for those two Djokovic and Serena. So you just named two of the all-time great tennis players is that pretty much a common attribute. So, you know, sometimes a great player has a great serve or it's their forehand or it's their movement. That's their defining physical trait. But is it basically that all great players also have this ability to manage momentum and really see the flows of a match? Well, yeah, I think so. I think it's a, it's a defining factor because, and I think you will know anybody who's listening to this will know somebody who is what you might call a streetwise player, a clever player who wins more matches than their standards suggest they should. And I think you'll see, you'll see it at all levels, but I think at the top level, the top level, you would imagine there's very little between all the players. You would imagine by this stage, they're all fit, they're all playing. And actually, if you, to the uninformed eye, if you watch a player who's 1,000 ATP, you, 
if you don't know tennis, you think by the way they strike the ball, they should be playing at Wimbledon. And why isn't this player playing against Rafa or in the girls? Why are they not playing against Swiatek? Whereas, you know, it's not true. The top players keep winning. They go on runs of matches. And Rafa, that stat on Rafa, who, who won, I think, during his French Open, I think it's 56% of points, having dominated the French Open year after year after year after year, won 90-plus percent of all the matches. I think he's, um, you know, 106 out of 109 matches played. But he's only won 56% of the points. So he must be winning the points when they matter, making adaptations. And it's the same for all the top players. Matches don't go good, very good, great game over. They're winning, they're, they're making moves, and you can see it in every every single top match. Um, somebody gets a bit nervous and they capitalize. You know, we those of us who are supporting perhaps certain players you know, hope it's going to work out against the top player. And then soon the top player will make a quick move and it's all it's all done and dusted. Sometimes the lesser player falls away. But there's adjustments going on the whole time. And if you listen to the interviews, you won't hear them say, I just did the same thing. They'll say at the start of the second set, I thought this was going to happen, so I did this. Or I changed it up here. And and you can you can if you listen carefully, you can hear the changes that they've made and therefore They've thought about it in the match. It's not just happened. What's your best advice for when someone has just lost a close first set? So let's say a seven, a tiebreaker, seven, six. So we know the level was, was very close, but now it's one set to zero and, and you're back to square one again. What's your best advice for how they should handle that situation? Well, this is where we come to the scoring system because we have a fantastic scoring system in this situation. Uh, it's a three-tiered scoring system. Points make games, games make sets, sets make matches. So you have a great chance to turn the match around because you are gifted a 0-0 love all at the start of the second set. So the, the, the key to that is to be really fast out of the blocks at the start of the second set. Decide on your tactics, refresh quickly. And you know it's, it's all about squashing time. If you Sometimes you've lost 7-6, and there's a rain break and you go back to the hotel and you think about it and you come out with a fresh start and you've got new tactics, perhaps or a slight adaptation to your tactics and a fresh approach and off you go. Well, you haven't got time to go back to your hotel. You've got 90 seconds. But if you can squash all that down into that 90 seconds and come with a fresh approach, fresh tactics, learn what you've learned from the first day, you're given love all, which is a fantastic opportunity for you to start again and go again. So I think knowing the scoring system, knowing the t- potential turning points, love all is one. And, and you particularly see it if you are six love down, love all. Because if it was six love and you go two love up, we all know that feeling of winning six love and then being two love down. It's a terrible feeling. You feel like you're, on, you're almost on your way to you know, one set all. If it was two tiered, the score would still be... 6-2 because it would just be if it just carried on first to 21 as in table tennis you know you it doesn't change and the same with say 6-1 three love that's 9-1 in a two-tiered scoring system so if you win the next three games you're still 9-4 down but if you're 6-1 three love and you win the next three or four games you fall three up or three all it's a big change so our scoring system creates these opportunities for turning points 
So you've got to see the you've got to see the positive. You've got to be always thinking about what's the positive here. If I'm game point down or set point down, and I've not been anywhere in the match, this could be the chance to turn the match around. Because there's nothing worse for the opposition than losing an opportunity to get the extra set, and suddenly they're set down because they lost that. They lost their concentration. They, you know, you can you can be if you take it to an extreme. You can be winning for an hour and a half in tennis. You can win 6-4. You can be one love, one or two, one, two, or three, two, three. You can be winning for an hour and a half, never behind in, in the score. And when you're set and 5-4 up, 40-30 at match point, if a player misses a shot and loses two points, loses for 10 minutes to lose a set, they're at one set all. And they can be winning for an hour and a half and losing for 10, 12 minutes, and suddenly it's one set all, and they feel terrible missed an opportunity, they were one point away from winning the match, now they're a full set away from winning the match. What if that had happened? Why didn't I do this? Why did they decide to play safe? Should I attack? Why did they decide to attack? Shouldn't I play safe? You know, all these things are going to go through their minds. And, um, you know, it's 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 just a wonderful scoring system. So to be, so I've wandered off into a, a, a range of things about the score there, but Love All gives you a great chance to turn the match around. And if you've lost the set 7-6, well, we know that 7-6-6 love is a, a quite a common score, especially in junior tennis. It's normal for players to be 7-6, get disheartened. We go back to momentum and that feeling of progressing in a match. You don't feel like you're progressing in a match. You feel like momentum's against you. So the normal reaction is to lose 6-love. We know that. We see it on the scoreboard. And last question here. You know, you're the momentum master. If you could only give one tip to the amateur adult or the junior player about momentum or something that you would want them to know what would that one thing be always look for what could be because tennis allows a whole series of opportunities have you ever seen the film sliding doors i don't know if you've ever seen that film where the girl comes down the steps and in one shot she misses the train and then she comes down the steps again and gets the train. And it leads to a fork in the road, effectively. Different timelines, one set of events followed by or another. Well, tennis allows that to happen. It allows the sliding doors moment at set points, even at match point down. So always look for what could be, would be my response. I love that. That's fantastic. Um, and then... For anyone who has listened to this and has become as intrigued as I've become over the last few weeks at the whole topic, where can they find you and, and your information online? CoachingEdgeUK.com is where we have all our resources. And if you go there, you'll see the online resources. You'll find us on YouTube. You'll find us on LinkedIn. You'll find us on Instagram and Twitter as well. Thanks for coming on the show. No, it's been a pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you. All right, that was a ton of information, but mastering this skill is so, so important to winning more matches. Much like Carlos Gaffi spoke about in one of our earlier podcast episodes, the time between points is so crucial to playing your best tennis. I love how Alistair said the turning point is never the event itself, but your reaction to that event. I also loved his advice at the end where always think about what could be the way I take that, you know, if you're down in a match, what an opportunity if you were down 5-4 match point and you think about what could be, what happens if you were to win that game? Think about how nervous your opponent would be now that it's 5-5 and they've choked a match point. So instead of worrying about your current situation, 
view it in the most positive light, see if that gives you a little boost, and maybe you win more matches. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.